Father, we are very, very, very grateful for all that you've done for us. The more we know about it, Father, the more grateful we become. The more we hear about your grace, the more overwhelmed we are. The more we hear about your love, well, it takes our breath away. And in this precious moment we receive your love. And we receive your strength. Father, you know how weak we are and how much we need of you. Thank you for giving us so generously, so graciously, all that we need. And we know that, Father, your word builds us up in our most holy faith, so as we read and consider it together, we ask, Father, that it will show us something more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to follow where I am, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. <coughs> 1 Samuel chapter 1. Samuel and uh, Kings are, are books with great stories in them, so they're very well loved by God's people because of the fascinating, inspiring stories they have. But the way they're put together is always very interesting too. If you have a Bible open, you'll know that the book before 1 Samuel is Ruth. The book before Ruth is the book of Judges. That's quite right. You are on the swing. That's okay. You don't like me asking questions this time of the morning, do you? Why would you? And um, so Judges. But actually Ruth was written in the time of the Judges, so actually Judges and Samuel come together like that. Ruth, as it were, was in the book of Judges. So take that one out and you have Judges running into 1 Samuel. Significant point, because if you read through the book of Judges, apart from being very discouraged, it's not like the Good News newspaper, that's for sure. It's quite the opposite. It finishes on a very, very low note. And then you have the book of Ruth to read, and that encourages you immensely. But the book of Samuel picks it up. And the book of Samuel will take us from the times of the Judges into the times of the Kings. Saul is the first, David the second, and then into the king, books of Kings, and Solomon comes and all the others come that way. So it's a significant book. How would you start a book like that? Well, this is how this writer or the authors, probably more than one person, wrote the book. He's taking us from the time of judges when things are about as low as they can be. He's going to take us into the time of the kings. Important moment. The whole life is going to change. They're going to be, not be a tribal nation anymore. They're going to be a proper nation with a capital city and a king over them and a community that is centered around the temple that's all in the future how will you start a book like that well there was a certain man from Ramathaim a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah son of Jeroham the son of Elihu the son of Tohu the son of Zuth an Ephraimite he had two wives one was called Hannah and the other Peninnah Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. That's how he starts. He explodes his little story onto an ordinary canvas. He's not going to tell us about very important people. Probably Elkanah is an important guy. 
we're told a lot about him. We're told his genealogy. We're told he has two wives, so presumably he's quite a wealthy man to look after twice the size of the family. But we're told in, the, in verse 2, the stories are going to be all about Hannah so far. Hannah and Peninnah, Peninnah and Hannah. That's one way the storyteller is drawing our attention to this one woman, Hannah. So if you can lift, carefully consider the nuances of the storyteller's art, then he's telling us Hannah is what this story is about, the one who has no children. Not about Elkanah, it's not about Peninnah, it's about Hannah. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Well, obviously not. Because Hannah was clearly the first wife who didn't produce any sons, or any other children for that matter, so he took another wife, Peninnah, so he would have sons. So clearly he wasn't more important to her than ten sons because he wanted the sons, didn't he? So it's rather, even though we're meant to like Elkanah, he's a good guy, he's not very sensitive to his wife here. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple in bitterness of soul. Remember, it's a man writing this. What do men know about the souls of women? What do men know about anything about women? Gentlemen, do we? A man was walking along the beach uh, in um, California and he picked up a bottle and out he rubbed the bottle, he took the top out, rubbed the bottle and out came a genie who said, thank you for releasing me from 2,000 years of imprisonment in this bottle. I can offer you anything you like. So the guy said, well, I'm about to get married. So if you could help me understand the inner workings of a woman's mind, that would be really, really helpful. The genie said, do you have another choice? So the guy said, well, actually, I like to go to Hawaii, but I don't like flying and I don't like sailing. It's a long way away, so could you build me a bridge from this beach right over to Hawaii? And the guy said, and Jesus said, um, this woman, um, let me tell you about her. And he just gave her the inside story. What do we know about her? This is being written by a man. And he's giving us the inside of a woman's heart because he's writing the story from the perspective of God. So in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord and she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. 
As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. What do you know about Hannah? Well, that's just about it. That's all you know about Hannah. So what's her claim to fame? Why does this story start like this? Why does this important book in the Bible begin with a story about a non-entity called Hannah, who has no claim to fame? All she is is a barren woman. That's all she is. So why is the story open to her. She'll have a chapter and a half devoted to her. Later on in the books of kings, for example, a king called Omri, who's quite, by all accounts, contemporary-wise, he's quite well known. He was a builder. So if you'd asked people in those days who King Omri was, they'd have known who he was, even outside Israel. His life is told to us in eight verses. Hannah a woman who has no claims to fame, who doesn't build anything, write anything, or leave anything behind apart from a son, has a chapter and a half. What does that tell you about the way God sees history? It's a very important point. You see, King Omri would think he was a powerful man, an important man, a man to be reckoned with. Hannah would never have thought of herself like that. But when God is writing his history of the nations, he chooses to emphasize Hannah, not Omri. It says a huge amount about the way God is seeing history. But something's going on here. And this isn't just about a woman who has a pain, a bitterness of soul that she pours out to God. It is about that too. But it's about more than that. So, Elkanah has these two wives. Well, we're not told, storytelling didn't tell us all the stuff about these things. The storyteller just tells us what he wants us to know. He doesn't stop and say he shouldn't have had two wives. He shouldn't. Genesis 3 tells us that. Genesis 2 and 3 tells us he shouldn't have two wives. We should know that already. But anyway, you can see the difficulties arising out of here and the pain in Hannah's life. Hannah's Childlessness, it may be no big deal to Elkanah, but it's a big deal to Hannah. He loves her, and we're meant to like the guy, but he fails to appreciate her agony and is unable to comprehend her situation accurately. He's had sons by a second wife, so why would he worry? And Penina, well, of course, she's a second wife, so we're not meant to hate her. Because there's this contrast between the two fighting, but you can see where it comes with Hannah. She hasn't been able to give her husband sons that he's wanted, and she's also provoked by the wife who can. 
So she's feeling at a very low ebb. An unimportant woman. The only legacy she could ever leave behind would be a son, and she doesn't have a son. How small does that make her life? In passing, we're told by the storyteller that Hophni and Phinehas are the two sons of Eli and they were priests of the Lord. They'll come back into the story. We're not going to see them today, but just in passing, <coughs> we're introduced to them because they're going to be the opposite of the son that Hannah will have. He will be a son like they're not. He will be everything that they are not. So God is just putting up some contrasts here. Even the priest, the priest who is meant to represent God to the people, the people to God, the person who brings the word of God to nurture and encourage the people, mistakes her outpourings of grief and agony and bitterness of soul as being drunk. How far from God can he be when he sees someone passionately pouring out their heart to God? And all he thinks is she's drunk. That's how far he is from God. But Hannah turns to God because God knows and God cares. It's hard to imagine that the God who instructs us to mourn with those who mourn doesn't do so himself. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart, Genesis 6, 6 tells us, was filled with pain. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, Luke tells us, and saw the city, he wept over it. And we could go on. Our God is a God who feels stuff. And he feels Hannah's pain. And Hannah turns to him, not away from him. Revelation 16 will tell us that there are people who in their utmost awfulness of life will turn from God, not to God. People still do it today. The worse it becomes, they turn away from God, not to God. But that's not Hannah's choice. And Hannah here is not trying to bribe God to give her a son. If you give me a God, I'll give, give me a son, I'll, I'll give him back to you, kind of quid pro quo. Now her heart's desire is that a son of hers would serve the Lord all the days of his life. Don't see it as her sort of reluctantly offering him to be a priest in the future, if God will be so kind as to give her a son in the first place. She has a heart for a son to serve God. And here's the thing. So does God. God has a heart for a son who has a heart for him. Hosea, much later on, will tell us about the Exodus and will speak in the words of God and say, Out of Egypt I called my son. And the people of God are called singularly my son. We're also called the bride of Christ, but we're also called the son in the Old Testament. And God's longing, heart of longing, is for a son, a people, who will do what he wants them to do, who will receive everything he has to give and love him in return. That's God's heart. And if we read Judges, we'll find that's about as far as they can be from that. But as God moves into the next stage of the revelation and the life of these people walking through history, this is what he's really longing for, a people who will follow him. And Hannah's desire exactly matches God's. Don't you find that good? This broken woman, for her, she just thinks, 
It's about a son that she can offer to God. About God says, your heart is much closer to me than you ever guessed. Later on, God will speak about a David, that he will be a man after my own heart. I think you can use that terminology for Hannah too. She's a woman after the heart of God. You see, the books of Samuel and Kings will show us where real power lies. They're the stories of the kings. And one thing about kings in ancient antiquity was that kings were above the law. Kings could do exactly what kings wanted to do. Whatever the king wanted, the king could have. David would fall into that trap with Bathsheba and think he's above the law and cover up his adultery with murder and think he can get away with it. That's exactly how Near Eastern kings worked. They just thought they could do whatever they liked. They had the power to do it. And the whole of the books of Samuel and Kings is to tell us that's not where real power lies. Where does true power lie? It lies with God. Hannah knows it. It doesn't lie with her husband. Nice go though he is. Maybe even wealthy, important man that he is. He cannot help her in her distress. He could be a bit more sympathetic, but he can't help her. She could turn to the priesthood. They can't help her. They're men who are abusing power, misusing power, as we shall discover if we went on further into the book. People are using the power for their own ends, and so many of the kings would do exactly the same. And the point about this story, starting the whole process is, God is saying, all power is mine. So Zechariah will have God saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus stands, raised from the dead, to look at his disciples and say, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, he says, therefore go. Where does real power lie? With God. But it's not the power of the machine gun or the body bomb or the nuclear bomb or any other wicked instrument of destruction. That's not where real power lies. Real power lies with God. So God feels our pain as well as we do. And our situations are bigger than we realize. For Hannah, she just thinks it's about children. She longs for a son. But working, God is working to a plan and God is bringing something about that Hannah will probably never in her life fully appreciate. Her prayer is indeed heard and the child is born. And the baby boy to be born is the answer to Hannah's prayers but he's also the answer to God's plan too. Samuel will be the one who exercises power carefully from God, bringing about the changes that God wants. Hannah will have no knowledge at the time how strategic her prayer is. Her son is not just going to be a guy who's going to be devoted to God. He's going to be a game changer. Everything's going to change when Samuel turns on. He couldn't be more different from everybody else. But perhaps she never knew it in her life. That's the point. To her, she had a son. She gave him back to the Lord. He grew up in the service of the temple of the Lord. She went to see him regularly and knew his influence. 
but never knew the influence would be perpetuated throughout history. So in the books of Samuel, human power is presented in general as a corrupting influence. But right at the beginning is placed this little domestic story that generations to follow are meant to read and say, when things get tough, or even when they don't get tough, when things just go normally, where is the centre of gravity? Where does true power lie? Who has proper authority? The book, the Bible will finish with a book that's all about that. Come up here, says the angel to John, and I'll show you what must soon take place. And he enters God's realm, and God says, this is where real power lies. And that to a man who is actually under the rulership of the Roman Empire, who think they have all power. Whatever they want, they can do. And they did, whenever they wanted it. And the contrast is great. But John sees where real power lies. So the young Samuel is contrasted with the older sons of Eli. He's contrasted with the Eli and so forth. And God is going to bring about his changes in Israel, but he's going to bring them about through a powerless, barren woman and a powerless, small child. And we've had a few stories this morning. We started with a story about Christians running for their lives and who wouldn't. In places in the Middle East, I would have been among the first to go, I'm sure. And we wonder where, what God is doing and how he's doing it. God's ways are not our ways. I don't say that simplistically, but they are not our, our ways, are they? His thoughts are not our thoughts. And while we pray for these people, we pray they will not revert to worldly ways, but keep holding on to God in the midst of their pain and sorrow and distress and heartache. True power lies with God. Not with revenge or hateful action. Paul reminded us earlier on, it's all by grace of God. Grace changing people's lives. We were reading in our newspapers, even before we came in, pastors to the rescue on the streets. How that has confounded the powers that be, the police and the other authorities, to say it's brought about a huge change. How? By simply loving people on the streets. God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. So as we head off into the week, Another week that will be fairly normal, I guess, for most of us, may involve all sorts of unexpected things. But I want to pass you this. Real power lies with God. And the power that changes is the power that God gives us to live to change lives among other people. Isn't that true? It's love that changes things. It is grace that changes things. And God chooses to use the weak to confound the strong. So Paul, a powerful man, an educated man, a theological man, a man of influence and position, had to learn from God that God's power is made perfect in weakness, not strength. Gideon had to find that his army was too big for God to use and have to be reduced right down, not just to make a interesting teaching point for children but to tell Gideon and all the people that will follow him that it's not by might nor by power that God saves. David will go at Goliath with five small stones in his hand and say to Goliath you come at me with sword and spear but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty 
because you're going to find out and all the other Philistines that God does not save by sword and spear. God will deliver us, says David, this young lad. And right the way through the, the whole of the Bible you find this lesson again and again and again and we have just celebrated one of the cruelest things mankind ever did. We just celebrated it. Killing the Son of God. Jesus allowing himself to be killed. Why on earth would he do that? Why wouldn't he have released the legions of angels to give the Romans their comeuppance? Because that would not have solved anything. What solves something when someone takes all the wickedness of the world upon himself and says it goes no further than this. This is where it finishes. Life can begin out of death. And that's truly what happened. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the new creation began. A man raised from the dead in the middle of time, promising that's how it's going to be. Resurrection power of God. And you and I live in the resurrection power of God. Not so we can be strong people. Not so we can get other folk. But we can live lives that duly, truly do transform the societies we live in because of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. John will say, he who is within you is greater than he who is in the world. So don't be just downcast. Don't be sad. Live that life. Let me pray. Father, you have fed us in communion. You have fed us you have nourished us. You've given to us what we need. We know that it's not by our own strength, but it's by your spirit that anything is accomplished. And more than anything, Father, we want to enter into this forthcoming week with joy in our hearts and with a song in our lips praise your name and to live for your glory. So will you fill us with your spirit, Father? However weak or frail we may feel at this precise moment, however overwhelmed by what may be coming up in the next few days, Father, will you fill us with your spirit and will you keep on filling us with him as much as you can, as much as we are able, so that we can walk in step with your spirit, not, we may say, striving and struggling in order to earn your love, but resting in your love and living lives of gratitude for what you've done in ways that touch the communities of which we are a part. Thank you, Father, for beginning that process of change in our lives. Keep it up, we ask. And may that change bring about transformation in the community where we live. For we want other people to see us and to give glory and honour to you. So you are good, Lord. And you've given us every blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. May it be our joy and pleasure to bring honour and glory to your name this week. For Jesus' sake. Amen.